It's right here. I get enough microphone action. Perfect. Thank you. Echo. How's everybody doing? Good, good. It's good to see everybody here. I do like to be like perfectly in the middle. I don't know. Psychologically, it throws me off if I'm a little. There we go. Now I'm saying Matthew chapter 8. Go ahead and open up there. Glad everybody's having a good week so far. It always feels good when we get to Wednesday night. Because it's like, okay, we've only got two good days left in the work week. This is like kind of the beginning of the weekend for me. Like Thursday, I already got my mind blown on the weekend. And Friday, you know. So Wednesday night always feels good. It's good to be here. Um, But Matthew chapter 8. Now, what does it take to be exceptional at anything? Anything you can think of. What does it take? Practice. Practice very much, right? Like they say, 10,000, what is it, 10,000 hours worth of practice is what? Is there any truth to that? Like, what's that based on? I've heard that before. Well, yeah, something like that. And does it apply to anything? Like, if I started ballet tonight, and 10,000 hours later, I could be a master ballerina. All right. Ballerino. Ballerino, is that the <laughs> technical term? All right, thanks for the correction there. Well, what else does it take? Commitment. Yeah, self-motivation, dedication, right? It takes commitment and just dedication. When you look at people that are successful in this world, the common characteristic is just obsessiveness with being successful. You know, you look at somebody from a business standpoint, like Elon Musk, who just wakes up in the morning and just dives all in on whatever kind of work projects he has. It doesn't matter. Go ahead. Elon, thank you for the correction. Also, I thought you said he just dies. (laughs) Not literally. He dies. Elon. But, like, it doesn't matter to him that he's already got more money than everybody. He's all in. He thinks he's an alien, okay. I don't know about that. But um, you look at somebody like Michael Phelps back in the swimming days. Did I pronounce that one right? Yes. All right. Mikhail. Mikhail Phelps. Uh, but like you look at him and you look at his training regimen, and it was literally from his diet to his sleeping habits to what he did while he, he was awake. Every single aspect of his life was completely honed in on simply being the best swimmer in the world. You look at musicians. Musicians who are world-class, that is their obsession. That is all they do. They are fully committed, fully focused. What does, so you look at these things, what types of things do people in the world tend to commit themselves to? Money. Money, worldly pursuits, right? Money, fame, or like excellence in some kind of earthly endeavor. So how much more, if, if, people are willing to dedicate themselves in that way, and speaking from our perspective as believers, they dedicate themselves in that way to things that we would say are just a breath. James, Proverbs, Psalms repeatedly tell us that we are just grass that is here one day and gone tomorrow. Ecclesiastes tells us that our life on this planet is a vapor. So if The people of this world 
find themselves so dedicated to temporal, worldly things, how much more should we find ourselves as Christians with that kind of passion and commitment for eternal things, for God's kingdom, for the things that truly matter in eternity? Christ, that's what Christ calls us to. When you look at his call to discipleship, it is always a call to take up your cross and follow him. When, what, what did the cross, what was the cross for? Not necessarily the, Christ, the cross that Christ died on, but just the cross in general. What was it about? Torture. Torture to the point of death, death right? Like when Christ says, take up your cross, he's saying, hey, your whole life, like your whole life is to be laid out for the cause of Christ, to be a disciple of mine. It, it, it is everything. Paul says, Galatians 2, it's not even I who live anymore, but it's Christ who lives in me. Um, Romans 12, 1 to 2, talks about our life being a sacrifice to God. There's no halfway sacrifice. Like you can't, in the Old Testament, when they took a lamb to sacrifice it, it was fully dead, right? There wasn't like, they didn't like halfway kill a lamb and then let it run off. Like there's no halfway death. There's no halfway crucifixion. You died. It was a, it was, it was a complete thing. When we look at examples in this world of commitment, dedication to excellence, full self being fully sold out to the things of this world. We should look at our lives for Christ in the same kind of way. The way for Michael Phelps, everything he did was centered around becoming a world-class swimmer. Same thing for us, but around the glory of Christ. Paul says, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Christ calls us to single-minded devotion. And that's what we're going to see tonight, but it's just really one of many times that this comes up in the Gospels, which is such a helpful reminder to us that we'll get to. One thing to keep in mind when we go, when we look at the example of Christ, when it comes to our own evangelism and what we tell people the Gospel is and what we tell people discipleship is and what it means to be a follower of Christ, we have a human tendency to water it down. We have a human tendency to soften the message. But time and time again, Christ reminds people who want to follow him that the call to discipleship is a call of single-minded devotion. So chapters 8 and 9, we're kind of in the middle of chapters 8 and 9, and they're really more historical narrative chapters that are sandwiched in between two long passages of dialogue where Jesus is just teaching. So we did Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, a really rich three chapters of um, Jesus just pouring on rich teaching. In chapter 10, we'll get to uh, a second one of these dialogues from Jesus when he sends out his disciples. But chapters 8 and 9 are really kind of a historical narrative where we catch Jesus. Where is he at geographically? Where is he at right now, the current city setting? Anybody remember? The, the where? The 
seed. Yes, it does. I thought you were talking about the C, like S E A, and I was like, but yes, C, the letter C. Capernaum, that's right. So the Sermon on the Mount was just kind of on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Then he moves inland um, after that to Capernaum. And that's where we find our current setting. There's kind of, uh, there's three miracles that we've already highlighted in chapter 8. The first one in verses 1 to 4, the leper, Jesus healing the leper. And then in verses 5 to 13, Jesus healing the servant of a Roman centurion. In verses 14 and 15 last week, we looked at Peter's mom, Jesus healing Peter's mom. But then in verse 16, Matthew just simply says, they brought many to Jesus who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were ill. So miracles are very much a common theme running through these two chapters. Um, So far, they've been primarily focused, not entirely, because we just saw in verse 16 the casting out of demons, but but, but primarily they've been focused on physical healing. The leper had a physical disease. The the, um, centurion servant had a physical disease. Peter's mom had a fever, a physical disease. What's great is that Matthew, as we go through the rest of chapter 8 and into chapter 9, begins to really expand the spheres in which Jesus is exercising miracles, simply showing us the complete sovereignty of Christ over everything. Not just physical things, not just uh, physical infirmities, but spiritual. We're going to see the demoniacs um, coming up here shortly. That then um, nature itself. Next week we'll look at the crossing of the Sea of Galilee where they wake up Jesus in the middle of a storm and Jesus shows his authority over nature. As Alejandro pointed out for us last week, Matthew is demonstrating for us that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is the one that the Old Testament promised. He is God in the flesh, meaning he has all authority, all sovereignty, all power over everything. And that's why, as Alejandro pointed out in verse 17, Matthew goes right back to one of the most prominent messianic passages in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53. And Matthew quotes Isaiah 53. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. And go back and listen to last week's if you missed it, because Alejandro does a great job of showing us how that was really about not just simply physical healing, but that passage was known as, as prophesying for us the promised Lamb of God, the promised sacrifice from God to cover our sins. Matthew is being very, very careful to show us that Jesus is the one. Tonight, verses 18 to 22, that's what we're going to look at. And it's a passage where the geographic scene shifts. So right now, Jesus is in Capernaum. That's where he's been doing these miracles. 
And he's going to go with it. He's going to take his disciples and they're going to leave. But as he leaves, we're introduced to two other individuals. So that's what's kind of interesting about these stories, right? Is there's always people that are coming into the life of Christ. And Jesus does something in them to teach everybody, teach the world about who he is. I think that's interesting. He's not seeking these people out, and it's not by coincidence or accident. This is God's providence bringing these people. But it's like everywhere he goes, there's these people entering into the scene that then become this springboard for Jesus to act and Jesus to teach and to show his power. And we're introduced to two more people that enter into the scene tonight. And through these people, Jesus again teaches us, Christ calls us to single-minded devotion. Christ calls us to single-minded devotion. What's interesting is these are two individuals that approach Christ and express to him a desire to be one of his followers. What When, when we hear of somebody who desires to follow Christ, what's our approach typically to that? Encouragement, right? Sage, what were you going to say? Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah, we push them towards it. We encourage them. And that's the right thing to do. But that's really what makes the reaction of Jesus here so interesting. Now, here's a caveat. What does Jesus know that you don't know? Their motivation. Everything, right? But most importantly here, their motivation, right? Like you have to, uh, there's going to be things we'll point out and talk about here that are very direct applications to our own lives, but also our evangelism and how we share Christ with others. But one point of application would absolutely not be to make assumptions about a person's motives and hearts that you have no way of knowing about and, and try to discourage them and turn them away or something like that. Like you can't say, this guy went to college with me, so he must be a great person. Yeah, or conversely, you can't say this person didn't go to college with me, so he must be a horrible person, right? Like, Jesus has some inside knowledge here when these people approach, being the Son of God, knowing their hearts, knowing their minds, that we absolutely could not have. But the response of Jesus is very interesting in both of these examples. In short, in both of these examples, he's revealing to these men that they haven't really counted the cost of following him. They, they are saying with their words that they want to be disciples of Christ, but they don't really understand the ramifications. They still haven't come to a place where they're ready to let go of this world and put Christ as number one. Because for the disciple of Christ, when we come to Christ, there is no competition for our love and our affection and our loyalties. You think back to Jesus talking about um, oh, the, the sinner in the temple who, who's just begging for God's mercy. At that point, that man knows that there is absolutely nothing that he needs in this world. Not money, not relationships, 
not prestige, nothing he needs more than the mercy of God. And based on the reaction of Jesus here, it seems that these two individuals have not come to that place where they're prepared to count the cost and abandon all other things to follow Christ. They're not at that point where they're ready to take off their cross, die to this world, and follow Christ. The two individuals first will see a scribe. A scribe is the first one. The second individual, simply referred to in verse 21, another of the disciples. Another of the disciples. And, you know, to be transparent, we don't get the reaction of these individuals back to Jesus, right? So we don't know what ultimately happens here. Um, So I guess we can be hopeful that perhaps they do count the cost. They consider the words of Christ and turn to him, but we don't have that. Um, We simply have their initial appeal to Christ and the response of Jesus to count the cost. So let's read verses 18 to 22 here. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Then a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. As I mentioned, there's a a change of scenery that starts to take place here in the sense that they're in Capernaum. They're in Capernaum, and verse 18 says that when the crowds, when Jesus saw the crowds that were beginning to gather, he told his apostles, his disciples, hey, let's go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Let's go to the other side. Why do you think Jesus did that? You know, I mean, hey, maybe it's just a little too chaotic, right? Like, Jesus is there. He wants to teach his disciples. In chapter 10, we get we see where he sends them out to serve. And, you know, he's like, hey, this is really it's not going to happen here. That's very possible. There's no answer that I know here. I'm just getting ideas. And he was just exhausted? He was tired. Yeah. I mean, he fell asleep right when they got on the boat, right? And, like, he was sleeping through the storm. He needed a break. Maybe. He was what? He worked really hard preaching. I mean, he was going, going. Maybe he was. Maybe he did that so there would be a storm so he could prove to his disciples. Maybe he simply knew there was going to be a storm. He's like, man, we got to get out in that storm so I can show them what I can do. Hey, lost it. Wanted time to pray. Yeah, it's hard to spiritual. Just the the um, spiritual need to pray and be alone with God can be extra hard. We'll go two more here. Um, I was going to say what Lawson said, but maybe he's introverted. Maybe, maybe he, I don't know. It's possible. Whatever. <laughs> uh, let's see. Fox? Maybe he knew where it was best for the people he was teaching to be so they could learn it. Yeah. He could teach anyway. Who knows, right? Oh, we'll go one more since his was what Lawson said. Uh, for safety reasons, growing pain. Yeah, that could very well be it, too, you know. Um, There are times through the Gospels where it seems like the population 
is ready to just take Jesus and make him like their de facto ruler. Like, hey, you are now our political leader. You are our king, not in the sense of submission, like we submit to Christ as king, but in the sense of forget the Roman government. You're in charge of us now. Now go over to the Roman government. And that really wasn't what Jesus was here for. So it doesn't really tell us. It could be a combination of those things. could be any number of those things. But Jesus, it does say it was because of the crowds. He sees the crowds around him, and he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. That would be the Sea of Galilee, um, kind of in the direction he came from, from the Sermon on the Mount. But this time, he wants to go across the sea of Galilee. And again, remember, when we see these crowds, it's not just a few people. I mean, these are masses of people cramming in around to see this great teacher that everybody's been talking about, who not only teaches with incredible authority in a way that nobody else has ever heard any the scribes, the Pharisees, or anyone else teach, but he also heals people. Pretty impressive stuff. Right. So, they went to the other. It says they went to the other side of the lake. But I just they're not there yet. They're so. Um, I just messed up. So yeah, no, you're good. And then so they're in Capernaum, right? It's about a day's journey or so back to the Sea of Galilee. Um, so. They're on their way. They're going to get some boats and cross over. But on the way, they meet these two men. The scribe and then somebody else who we're simply told is one of the disciples. So the first part we'll look at is the scribe in verses 19 and 20. A scribe came and said to Jesus, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, who were the scribes? Were they like, were they like a subset of the Pharisees? I mean, you always hear the scribes and the Pharisees were two people. Yeah, you know, I've never heard that. Uh, I don't think so, but I'm not 100% sure. Like, I don't know, you could be right, and I'm just, I don't know that. But um, I don't know them as a subset of the Pharisees, but I'm not sure. Good guess. Don't scribes, like, write stuff down? Yeah, they were the legal experts. They were the ones who were, like, responsible for the safeguarding of the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, um, copying manuscripts, really being experts in the law. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they definitely had a great close relationship with the Pharisees, without a doubt. I mean, I kind of think of the Pharisees more as like a denomination, for lack of better words, and scribes as more of an occupation. So, I, thought, I think the scribes and Pharisees are really good. Because I think scribes didn't really think like a... You're thinking of the Sadducees. Different S word. Different S word. Different set. So, like, the scribes were... They, they kind of, like, courted as people said. Yeah, they were... Uh, 
they would do a lot of the manuscripts in the writing, which just kind of made them, by nature of that, experts in the law. And, um, you know, if they were, if we were going to do, like, the Bible quizzing, like, these would be the people that would win, you know? They know it all. They, they've got it down. They, they know it front and back. Um, and so Jesus, why was Jesus often at odds with them? Because it's a good thing to know the Bible, right? We try to memorize a lot of the Bible. Bible quizzing is a good thing. But So why, if this is good, why was Jesus so often at odds with them? Motivation? What else? Because if you're, if you're like right under the guy that controls everything, you if this guy comes to power, you are pretty much his second in command. Okay, but what about this? Does knowing the Bible automatically make you even a Christian? No. Like, you could be number one Bible quizzer and not be a believer, right? Or even look at so many uh, seminaries and universities where you've got the religious department or like even depart like biblical experts that aren't believers at all. And so, so often the problem that Jesus had with the scribes, it definitely was not that they knew so much scripture. That was, would never be a problem. But it's that they knew so much scripture yet failed to apply it to their lives. Failed to believe it. Failed to respond by faith. And what does knowledge without obedience do? Nothing. It stacks up more judgment. Or you could say nothing, but you could also say it stacks up more judgment, right? Like, think about how um, Jesus told those two cities, like, woe is you. There's going to be, it, it's going to be worse for you in judgment than Sodom and Gomorrah because you had all the revelation. You had all the knowledge. Yet you failed to believe. You, you failed to apply what you knew. Now, I don't know if that is specifically the problem or the issue with this guy. I don't know, right? We're not, we don't really get a lot of insight from Matthew as to what Jesus understood about this man's heart. We don't know his heart. We don't know how he responded to Jesus. But that is a common observation we have from the life and ministry of Christ when it comes to his interactions with the scribes. And he uses a very interesting word to address teacher, or Jesus as. In verse 19, he addresses him as teacher. Now, was that true of Jesus? Absolutely. Jesus was a teacher. He was an incredible teacher. And it, we are told time and time again that people were amazed at his teaching. But is that all that he was or is? No, he's a lot more. So you don't want to read too much into it, right? Like, I don't want to put ideas down that and say that, yeah, this is the problem when we don't know. But it's an option. It's a possibility. That the issue here, here you have a scribe, somebody, you know those people who are just really interested in learning? And like, go ahead, Fox. Like, and probably it doesn't give us all the information on purpose. It's not really the point. Like, 
you got a ton of information like that, and we have like no information about Jesus' childhood, probably on purpose, because that's probably the only Without a doubt, the Bible tells us what we need to know, right? Um, I think the point that Jesus makes is very clear, that uh, it, his message to him, as we'll see, is about abandoning all things or putting following Christ above all things. But when he refers to Jesus' teacher, it's kind of interesting. You know those people who are just really into academics, Right? Like, even from a theology standpoint. Like, they're just really in to studying the Bible as an academic side, from the academic side. And so you get this picture that perhaps this is just a typical scribe. He's very interested in an academic sense in the Bible. And here's this profound teacher. And so he runs up to Jesus as teacher. You know, like, I will follow you wherever you will go. So it's interesting. We don't know what all is uh, going on here, but Christ obviously knows his heart. And Jesus says to him here in verse 20, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The, The implication here is that this scribe has not fully counted the cost of following Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying, look, even the lowest animals, the birds have nests. The the foxes have more security in this world than I do. I don't even have a place to lay my head. Isn't that a remarkable thing about Christ? To go from being creator of this universe, master, lord of the universe, to now he doesn't even have a place that he can really call home. He's sleeping on fishing boats. He's sleeping in gardens. He's sleeping at Peter's mom's house. Like He's just sleeping or Peter's house. He's just finding anywhere he can. He's just traveling as an itinerant teacher. Um, the, even the, even Christ does not have a place to lay his head. To follow Christ is to treasure him above all these worldly comforts. To me, this is a very convicting passage. Because we live with so many worldly comforts. So many worldly comforts. And in our culture, it's relatively easy to have them. Yeah, speaking of worldly comforts, um, my mom tells me that I probably would not be very well rested if I didn't have my bed, or my blankets, or my pillows, or my fan, or my room. Yeah. It's, uh, think about just the the culture we live in, the, the worldly comforts we have, yet Jesus is saying... To follow him means to treasure Christ above all these things. And I try to challenge myself with this passage, you know, to search my heart. Do I truly treasure Christ above all the securities of this world and all the the comforts of this world? 
especially houses, right? We, we live in a, even if you live in an apartment or condo, it's like you've got, on normal days, running water, you've got electricity. I'm like, I have kind of like post-traumatic stress disorder over like last year's freeze. Like I, uh, geez, it's starting to get cold out and I'm like, oh no, I just don't want to do all that again. Like busted pipes and like, you do want to do that again? Oh, you don't. I want snow. I didn't like the loss of power. Yeah. We've got all to say. All to say. We've just become way... This this passage convicts me because here Christ is saying to him, Hey, you truly want to follow me wherever wherever I go? Be prepared to give up everything in this world. Be prepared to give up everything. And it's so convicting living the life of comfort and ease that I live. You, you, you can't help but to quiz yourself and to wonder, like, could I give all that up? Like, could I give up everything that I know and follow Christ? Of course, by the grace of God, it's only by the grace of God that anybody follows Christ. And so whatever <clears throat> measure of sacrifice God calls us to in following him, we can always be confident he's going to give us the grace and the power as his child to, who is secure in him to, to live that out. But when you read this passage, it's just something that it seems so foreign to what we have to consider and what we have to think about from the material aspect. But Jesus challenges him to follow me is to follow me wholeheartedly, giving up all worldly securities. We're not told what his decision is before another person enters into the picture. Verses 21 to 22, another disciple. Verses 21 to 22, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. So this is, when it says it's a disciple of his, it's not necessarily, it's definitely not one of the inner circle, one of the apostles. But remember, Jesus had a number of followers around him. We get most familiar with the 12 apostles, but uh, within these crowds, there's numbers of people who are followers of Christ. And here, one who's been apparently, I mean, Matthew addresses him as a disciple. So this is somebody who's been at least for some time following around Christ, uh, learning from Christ, hearing his teachings. But this individual walks up to Christ and says, uh, he says, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. What does that mean? I have a footnote that says that it does not mean that his father was actually dead. Right, yeah. So this isn't like a circumstance where like, hey, my dad died yesterday. Can I get like bereavement to go bury my father real quick? This isn't like that kind of thing. Like this is more like, uh, this is somebody who's still a part of his father's household. And the problem, if he leaves his family to go follow Christ, 
the issue here is missing out on inheritance. Like, what he's basically asking Jesus, and who knows, maybe his dad is old. Maybe he's like, hey, I, I think this guy's going in the next year or two, you know? So, like, it's like, hey, Jesus, can I have maybe like a year or two to wait out my father's dying here? He's, a, he's old. He's on the last, last leg. That way, I don't forfeit all my inheritance by leaving my household now to go travel you, with you and follow you. It, it's, a, it's another very clear illustration of somebody valuing the things of this world, money, family, over Christ. That's the real issue here. He values the potential inheritance and his family over Christ. He shows competing priorities with Christ. And Christ gives, it's recorded for us this kind of a weird response here in verse 22. Jesus says, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. It's a weird um, way of recording what Jesus says there. But what he's saying is that, hey, look, if you want to follow me, you've now been called to a life that is so much higher than anything in this world. The, the, sticking around to earn an inheritance, I mean, that is, the, the things of this world, as the Bible tells us, those things are grass that fade away. They're vapors. I mean, you're, you're, you're trading eternal glory. You're trading um, eternal riches for the temporary, in, in essence, in comparison with eternity, worthless things of this world. The point that Jesus is making is, hey, look, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to leave these things behind. Your commitments can no longer be to the things of this world. Let the people of this world who don't know Christ, let the people of this world who aren't part of this kingdom, let them worry about the things of this world. You know, if if somebody wants, that's not to have a callous attitude towards them or a non-evangelistic attitude towards them, but that's to say, hey, look, if this person wants to dedicate their life to work and to building up riches on this earth, you know, that's, that's, they're part of this world. Let them work for worldly things or sports or whatever it may be. But for us as followers of Christ, our dedication is fully to Jesus Christ. In both of these circumstances, what Jesus is challenging these men with is the fact that they have not yet recognized the priority of following Christ over the things of this world. That should be very, very relevant to us. That is a lesson that is relevant no matter where you are in history. Look, by the very nature of where you're at in time and history, it's possible, but not always that likely, that you're going to have to give up your house to follow Christ. It's possible, right? But not always that likely. But are there things you are going to have to give up 
to follow Christ? Maybe your reputation. Your reputation, yeah. Your unbelieving friends. Unbelieving friends, for sure. Your job, yeah. There, there's going to be so many different things of this world that you find yourself potentially involved with that run contrary to being a follower of Christ. And the question is going to be, where are your priorities? Have you counted the cost? Have you died to yourself? That's the picture of baptism. We have a baptism service coming up. Look at Romans 6. And when you see the baptism service, think about the picture. It's the picture of your old self dying. Your old commitments. Your old way of life dying. Your loyalties to this world dying. And being raised to walk in a newness of life. A new life that's, as Paul says in Galatians 2, Christ living in you. A life empowered by the Holy Spirit. The truths that Jesus is trying to get across to him, they, they are relevant to any point in history, although they might look a little bit different in how they get lived out, depending on where you are. Are there still people in this world at who coming to Christ means they lose their family or they lose their home? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's no question about that. These principles apply all throughout history. So when we talk about how to apply these, this passage and these principles, as usual, there's ways that we apply it personally, and then there's ways that we apply it in how we interact with others, right? So when we think about how it applies personally to us, the question is simply, how do you view your own call to follow Christ? Maybe that's something that you're still wrestling with. You know, maybe it's something that uh, you're still wrestling with where the things of this world have a hold on you. And you don't want to give them up. You don't want to let them go. Uh, you, you don't want the world to think differently of you. And I would challenge you to put your eyes on how the Bible describes the things of this world. And I've said it multiple times already tonight. The, the things of this world, they are grass that are here today, and they are gone tomorrow. You know? Um, the, the, the riches of this world are temporary and fleeting. The love of men, it, the same people who love you today will hate you tomorrow. You know? Will turn on you tomorrow. Those the, the things of this world are so temporary, so fleeting. And, and Christ calls us to his eternal kingdom. Even as a follower of Christ, this is a passage that still challenges me. Because as a follower of Christ, do you think you're never going to struggle with the priorities of this world? trying to get above Christ? No, you're still going to struggle with it, right? Like I said, I read a passage like this, and I, I'm highly convicted. 
and I start to evaluate my own life and start to think, geez, there's, there's a lot of areas where I can see that the things of this world can quickly become competing priorities with following Christ. Be it career things, money things, family things, uh, the pressures of this world, wanting people to like you, you name it. It, it, is, it is a constant challenge. Even look at Peter in Galatians chapter 2 again. It keeps coming up. Uh, Galatians chapter 2. Paul has to confront Peter because Peter has started to worry about what the Judaizers think and has started to um, kind of neglect and put off the non-Jewish believers. It's Peter himself being challenged again with the priorities of this world and the things of this world competing with Christ. It is such a convicting passage and something we have to evaluate our lives on all the time, over and over again. The second thing that it really applies to is our evangelism. When you call people to follow Christ, are you giving them the full picture? Um, I've been in churches where your goal is simply to get people to pray a prayer and sign a card, and then, hey, that's all. You got me. And like, it's like a celebrated thing. And it's like, wait a second. Did we truly call them to follow Christ? Did we share with them the same calling that Christ gave? Or are we watering down the gospel? The response is, don't water down the gospel. Call people to follow Christ. Implore them to follow Christ. But let them know that that means repentance. That means turning away from sin. Turning from the things of this world to follow him. And, you know, showing them... That, hey, the things of this world are empty. They are vain. They never satisfy and they can't. Turn instead to the one who does satisfy. To the one who gives eternal gifts, eternal treasures. Turn to Christ. But don't water down the gospel. And don't be shy about the high calling of Christ. Because that's what he laid out. That's what he gave us. It's the gospel he gave us. The Great Commission is to go out into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to obey the commandments of Christ. That's what it's about, is, is proclaiming this high calling of Christ, not some watered-down version of the gospel. But it's worth it, right? Nobody, it's remarkable. You'll never meet somebody who followed Christ with their life and regrets it. I've never met a 70-year-old who was like, yeah, I really regret doing, like, you know, following Christ all these years. I've literally never heard it once. I mean, you'll hear people say they regret just about anything, but I've never heard somebody, 70, 75-year-old, say, you know, I really regret being a follower of Christ all these years. I've never heard it once. You'll hear people who like grew up in a church and then they're like, yeah, I regret being in church all those years. Okay, well that's a totally different thing, right? Or like I regret like 
just always living under these rules. But that's a totally different thing. Never heard somebody regret being a follower of Christ. How long have you been alive? 39 years. So we're 39 years old. Were you just trying to get my age? Maybe. Maybe. No. But, uh, yeah. But um, follow Christ. Don't be distracted by the things of this world. Respond to the high calling of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for just what you've called us to. Pray that you would give us clear vision. um, Just a clear understanding that the things of this world don't offer any kind of eternal hope or peace. That the things of this world are not fulfilling. But following you is. That's where we have eternal life. That's where we have eternal treasure. And I just pray that, the Spirit, you would be at work in our hearts and our minds to give us that single-minded devotion and that passion. And we thank you for all your love and all you do for us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.